Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, One after another, is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you use the preaching of your word to give us the most faithful and devoted regard for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Jesus moves into the city for the celebration of Passover. The Passover was supposed to be celebrated within the precincts of Jerusalem. Verses 12 through 16 emphasize the providential arrangements of the room where the meal is eaten. In verse 15, Jesus tells the disciples that the room will be furnished and ready. The meaning of this is that in this sacred hour, there is nothing casual or happenstance. It has all been arranged by the plan and foreknowledge of God. Likewise with Judas, as we saw two weeks ago. Jesus is not surprised by his betrayal or his arrest. Jesus foresees these things and acts in accordance with prophecy and the will of God. Verse 16 says two of Jesus' disciples go ahead to the room to make preparations. Luke chapter 22 verse 8 tells us that this is Peter and John. What are they doing? Well, they are preparing the Passover meal. The preparation involves purchasing all the necessary items, baking the unleavened bread, preparing the sauce for the bowl in which the bitter herbs are dipped, and having the lamb slain at the temple and then roasting it. Now, during the course of the meal, Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to the disciples. The short blessing that Jesus says over the bread, which is mentioned in verse 22, was traditionally a prayer of thanksgiving for creation. To this would have been added a blessing for the feast of Passover. 
Jesus then takes the bread, breaks it, and says in verse 22, Take, this is my body. Jesus here is giving new meaning to the bread. He says, this is my body. This is a new meaning for this covenantal meal. He breaks the bread as a prophetic sign of the giving of life for his disciples. Jesus, by means of the covenant meal, is joining his disciples to himself before he offers himself up as a sacrifice for their sins and the sin of the world. This is my body, now you eat it. He is joining the disciples with his sacrifice. He shares the meal with them so that they will be joined to his death and all that his death accomplishes. Jesus then in verse 23 takes the cup of wine. Now there were four different cups of wine during the Passover meal. The major blessing was said over the third cup, and this was known as the cup of blessing. And the prayer was long, but it began like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth fruit from the vine. The prayer goes on to mention the covenant with Abraham and the gift of the promised land and the eternal kingdom of David. And verse 23 describes this prayer as a prayer of thanksgiving. So they are giving thanks during the meal. Why? Why give thanks during the meal? Well, the prayer of thanks tracks along two lines. It's thanksgiving for God's gifts of creation and thanksgiving for God's gifts of redemption. God's gifts always flow from one of those two places. And so that's what we thank Him for. We thank God for His gifts of creation and we thank God for His gifts of redemption. And so if you find yourself stalled out in your prayer life, I would encourage you to begin with praise of God and thanksgiving. And if you think, well, my life's not very good right now. I don't know what to thank Him for. Well, think about God's gifts to you in creation, the material things He's blessed you with, your family. Also think about the gifts of God in redemption. Thank Him for the salvation He has given you in Christ. Fill your heart with thanksgiving. And it's more than just a prayer. It's more than just words. You're not just filling time. You're not just checking a box of prayer because you're supposed to pray. Giving thanks for God's gifts is how you receive them. This is Paul's point in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. Giving thanks for God's gift is the act of receiving the gift. If you receive a gift without the heart of thanksgiving, Paul says you're actually rejecting the gift. And so this is more than just prayer. This is your life. This is the standard for how you're going to receive the blessing of God. Giving thanks consecrates the gift so that you may use the gift. And what's interesting is modern American Christians usually feel guilty when they have material possessions. They've been trained to feel guilty when they receive God's blessings. And sometimes they don't know how to use them. They feel guilty for having something nice, for receiving a blessing from God. And I'm convinced that this guilt is because they're not receiving the gifts of God with thanksgiving. When you receive the gifts of God with thanksgiving, you're combining your faith with His generosity. And then you can use that gift to the glory of God. 
rather than being guilt-ridden over the fact that you don't have something that someone else doesn't. That's not how it should be. God's gifts are meant to be enjoyed, and that always starts with thanksgiving. And it's not just thanksgiving for the gifts of creation. Remember, it's also thanksgiving for the gifts of redemption, and that was heavily emphasized in this Passover prayer that we see mentioned in these verses. By giving thanks for their release from bondage in Egypt, they made it their release from bondage in Egypt. This is the expression of faith, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for God's redemption, for His salvation, is the act of faith. By giving thanks for salvation, they are making it their salvation. If you feel distant from God, if you wonder about the saving power of God in your life, I would encourage you, give Him thanks for what Christ has done. Make it your salvation through faith, and that always happens through thanksgiving. You see next in verse 24 that Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Again, just like he did with the bread, Jesus is giving new meaning to the wine. He's giving the sacramental drink new meaning. It is my blood you're drinking. This isn't the blood of a lamb. This is my blood you're drinking. He's giving new meaning to the sacramental drink. And so just as Israelite families were sealed in covenant relationship by the blood on the doorpost in Egypt, now Jesus bounds his disciples to himself in this covenant meal before he sheds his blood on the cross. Now in verse 25, there's an eschatological context to what he says. Verse 25, Jesus then says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is an eschatological statement. Jesus' life on earth is coming to an end. There will be no more drinking wine here. According to verse 25, when will Jesus drink wine again? Well, he says, in the kingdom of God. Well, what kind of wine will he drink in the kingdom of God? Just regular, ordinary wine for a regular, ordinary occasion? No. He says, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's talking about how he will drink it new as the resurrected king on his throne. And in the Old Testament, new wine is always a mark of prosperity. And so these are eschatological statements he's making here in verse 25. But understand, the point isn't to rip this out of Mark chapter 14 and race over to our eschatological system where we've got our chronology and the millennium somewhere and try to figure out where it fits. No, that, that's a very new way of doing eschatology. No, what we need to do when we see these eschatological statements is understand what does this mean? What's the theology here? And there's a deep meaning to this statement and so the point of this statement isn't to plug it into our favorite eschatological system and plug it into our timeline. The point here is to link the relationship between the cup of death in verse 24 and the cup of future glory in verse 25. That's the eschatological meaning of this passage. Those two things, the cup of death and the cup of future glory, are a single thing and arriving at a single purpose. It is through Jesus' death that salvation glory is achieved. 
That's one of the most important eschatological principles in Scripture. It is through Jesus' death that salvation glory is achieved. After this, we see in verse 26, they sing a hymn. What did they sing? Well, the traditional Passover celebration was singing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And when you piece this together, this is really a remarkable prayer. Psalm 113 starts with an invocation of the name of the Lord. Psalm 114 and Psalm 115 is a hymnic recounting of the Exodus. Psalm 116 is a thanksgiving psalm for God's mighty acts of salvation and Israel's resulting obligation to the Lord. Psalm 117 is all the nations are called to worship the Lord. And then Psalm 118 unfolds the full messianic hope for Israel. So in verse 26 it says they're they're singing this hymn. And also Jesus leads the disciples to the Mount of Olives. What's going to happen there? Well, that's where Judas will betray him. And so as they go to the betrayal, they are singing Psalm 118. Hosanna, save now we beseech thee, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This reveals that the Lord's Supper is about messianic hope. The Passover was looking forward to messianic hope, and Christ in the new covenant and the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of that messianic hope. And that's why you, as a Christian, should be taking the Lord's Supper every week. You should be taking the Lord's Supper every week. Why? Why should you take the Lord's Supper every Sunday? Well, consider four reasons that you should take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. The first reason is because it's the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. This is what Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. And this is unique. This is meaningful because very few things in the Bible are called the Lord's. We have the Lord's Supper, and then we have the Lord's Day. So you've got the Lord's Supper, where you've got then the Lord's Cup, and the Lord's table, and you have the Lord's day. So you have the Lord's Supper and all its implements, and then you have the Lord's day. That's it. That's what's called the Lord's in Scripture. And those two things, the Lord's Supper and the Lord's day, they belong together. The Lord's day is distinguished by the fact that it is the day for the celebration of the Lord's Supper at the Lord's table, where we all share together the Lord's cup. So then the question is, why are these things called the Lord's? Why is it called the Lord's day? And why is it called the Lord's supper? Well, if on the Lord's day, we celebrate the Lord's supper at the Lord's table, drinking the Lord's cup, then that means that the Lord is hosting us. These things are the Lord's. It's the Lord's day, and He's inviting you into it. It's the Lord's supper, and He's inviting you to participate in it. The Lord is hosting us in these things. And through His Holy Spirit, with these things, the Lord is present among us. He's working among us. He's sanctifying us. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 records Jesus saying, Do this in remembrance of me. This is Jesus' interpretation of the fourth commandment. 
which says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And I'm afraid in modern American evangelicalism, there's a major downgrade of the Lord's Supper. All of this has been watered down by modern evangelicalism. For example, consider the Lord's Day. Modern evangelicals don't think much of the Lord's Day. For them, it's not a day for rest and worship. For them, it's a day where they might go to church and then the remainder of the day is self-indulgence. And modern evangelicals don't think much of the Lord's Supper either. For them, it's that thing that doesn't save you. What's the Lord's Supper? It's the thing that doesn't save you. That's the first thing we know about it. It doesn't save you. Let's just make that clear. It doesn't save you. So then what is it? Why do we do it? Well, uh, Jesus said do it, so we're going to do it. You know, we want to obey the Lord. Let's do it. It doesn't save you. Let's do it, though, because Jesus said do it. And then we, we do the Lord's Supper, and that's the meaning of the Lord's Supper in so much of evangelicalism today. And so evangelicals think that there is no grace conferred through the work of the Holy Spirit in taking the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper has meaning. Maybe it has been rendered meaningless and wrote in many evangelical circles. But this is a misunderstanding, and a lot of it centers around Jesus' words. It says, do this in remembrance of me. So what's the meaning? Well, we need to remember that this is in remembrance of him. So we take the Lord's Supper. I've got the bread. I've got the wafer. I'm going to eat it. Okay, I'm going to think about Jesus. Jesus died. Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay, that's the Lord's Supper. And I guess thinking about Jesus for that three or four seconds, that's, that's good for me. But you have to understand there's more to it than that. Neither Jesus nor Paul had in mind just a simple mental recollection. They had in mind far more. Why do we know this? Because it says, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, you are doing something. You're not just recollecting something for three seconds. You're doing something. What are you doing? Well, it's the Lord's Supper. You are having a covenantal meal with the Lord. And in that covenantal meal, God lays claim to his people who remember his act of redemption in faith and in thanksgiving. It's the Lord's Supper. And so we should be taking the Lord's Supper every Sunday. First reason is because it's the Lord's Supper. He's hosting us. He's making us his, his people. And he's renewing his covenant with us by these things. The second reason we should be taking the Lord's Supper every Sunday is because it's covenantal. It's covenantal. The communion meal is a covenant meal. And this is evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul there is, is arguing that the Corinthians should not participate in pagan cultic meals. But the entire grounding of his argument is that the Lord's Supper is covenantal. His basic argument there is, okay, the cup of blessing, that is participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, it is participation in the body of Christ. And therefore, you should not drink from the cup of demons. That's his argument. The argument is a covenantal argument. Partaking of the meal is an act of entering into covenant with the Lord. And of course, we see that explicitly in Mark 14, 24. Partaking of the meal is entering into covenant with the Lord. And Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 10 is if you are in covenant with the Lord, which means you're participating in the body and blood of Christ. So if you're in covenant with the Lord, you can't simultaneously be in a in covenant with the pagan gods. So when you eat the broken bread, you participate in the broken body. 
Jesus takes the cup, just like Moses took the blood in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. And what was Moses doing? Well, he consummated the formation of God's people after their rescue from Egypt. He was establishing God's covenant with Israel. The Mosaic covenant was sealed with a blood sacrifice, with the blood sprinkled over the people of the covenant community. You see this described in Exodus chapter 24. And by the way, men, women, and even young children participated in this. And so now Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is my blood. A new covenant is inaugurated by a sacrifice and the blood is shared among the people of the new covenant. And Jesus tells us in Mark 14, 24, this is a covenantal thing. This is a covenantal meal. And so the meaning for us is that we are renewing our covenant with the Lord. And so this reflects not only Exodus 24 and Jeremiah 31, but also Zechariah chapter 9, 11, which talks about the blood of my covenant. Well, what happens to the blood? Well, according to Mark 14, 24, the blood of Jesus in the new covenant is poured out for many. That's the language of sacrifice. So just like the lamb was sacrificed and the blood was sprinkled and splattered on the altar to temporarily and imperfectly cover the sin of God's people, now the lamb of God, the perfect lamb, the son of God, his blood is shed, his blood is sacrificed for the permanent covering of the sin of his people. This is language of sacrifice and it reflects Exodus chapter 24 verse 6. And this language about how his blood is poured out for many also reminds us of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, where the suffering servant poured out his soul. It just means he poured out his life to death. Well, why does the suffering servant do this? Well, it goes on to say in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, that in pouring out his life, he bore the sin of many. In other words, the penalty of sin is death, and he paid the penalty for his people. And so again, notice Mark 14, 24, Jesus' blood is poured out for many. Who are the many? Well, who's sitting there at the table with him? The disciples are there with him. The disciples drink the wine in faith. They're the many. What about Judas? Remember, Judas drank it. Judas drank the wine. The difference, though, is that the disciples, the other disciples, drank it with faith. And by drinking it in faith, you receive all the blessings of the covenant. When you drink without faith, like Judas, you are then drinking upon yourself the curse of the covenant, but all of it's covenantal. Judas's action of drinking without faith is a covenant action. And in response, he receives the curse of the covenant. The disciples, though, Jesus poured out his blood for many. The disciples who drink the wine in faith they are the many of whom Christ bore their sin. And so, why should you take the Lord's Supper every week? Well, first reason is because it's the Lord's Supper. The second reason is it's covenantal. The third reason you should take it every week is that the Lord's Supper is corporate. It's a corporate thing. And what that means is it's not individualistic. It's corporate. Now, when you look at Mark chapter 14, verse 1, verse 12, verse 14, and verse 16, all demonstrate that Jesus here is hosting a Passover meal. 
And so that means, as we've already established, that the predecessor of the Lord's Supper is the Passover. Jesus is now giving it new meaning for the new covenant. And the Jewish Passover is a corporate experience. It was observed in a group of family and friends. And the corporate nature of it was part of the celebration. You didn't celebrate this by yourself. This wasn't an individualistic action. They came together to share the meal. The meal had a particular form. It had a particular liturgy that recalled the basis of Israel's existence as the people of God, recounting God's blessings to them and salvation and redemption and all the things we've mentioned previously. Jesus' interpretation of the bread and the wine transforms the traditional symbolism of the Passover meal into something altogether new. And all this is predicted in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. The Lord's Supper is taking the place of the Passover meal because Jesus is the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in the Passover meal. And all of this is a thoroughly corporate thing. It's not individualistic. The Lord's Supper is not like eating in a cafeteria where each person picks the food they prefer. So why does the congregation take the bread and the wine together at the same time? on the instruction of the minister. I mean, why not have the congregants get out of their chairs, walk to the front, retrieve the elements, and then go find a corner in the room for private reflection. And then they can pray at their own pace and eat the bread and drink the wine at their own pace in their own timing once they're right with the Lord. Why don't we do it that way? Well, the reason is that the church has a sacred unity in Christ. You are saved as an individual, but what happens? You are made a member of the body of Christ. The moment you receive Christ through faith, you are part of the body of Christ. You exist as an individual no more. You are part of the body of Christ. You're an individual member of the corporate body of Christ. And so the Eucharist reinforces this unity, but not when every single person stands alone and just eats and drinks in their own timing. For the body of Christ to take the supper individually rather than corporately says something untrue about Christ. Now, of course, the temptation of the autonomous self is to envision itself first and foremost as belonging nowhere else to no one else. I'll do what I want. I'll listen to who I want whenever I want. No authority over me. That's the American dream. But taking the supper together each Sunday reminds God's people that they belong to the body of Christ. And so why should you take the Lord's Supper every week? Because it's the Lord's Supper, it's covenantal, it's corporate, and fourth, you should take the Lord's Supper every week because it's a means of grace. It's a means of Grace. Now, evangelicals yearn for the extraordinary. They desire an extraordinary experience. And so the preaching of the word, the prayers of the saints, participating in the sacraments, that's not enough for evangelicals. Those things are entirely too ordinary for a church that has unabashedly drunk from the well of an increasingly secular world. Today, the church's answer for everything is something extraordinary, something that will make all the people take notice. We want a new Pentecost, 
a new revival, a large political turnout, the next victory in the culture war. The new salvation by works is experiencing the extraordinary. The thought is that the spirit only works spontaneously, and anything planned is quenching the spirit. The spirit's the wind of God. He blows where he wishes. And if the spirit's working, that means the results will be spontaneous, they'll be quick, and they'll be radical. The problem is this. Yes, God can work extraordinarily, and he has many times. But while the church has prioritized the extraordinary, they failed to ask, how does God actually work? How does God ordinarily work? And what if God typically works through ordinary means of grace and the sorts of things that the world finds boring? What if the God of the Bible is the sort of God who sends his son, the king of creation, dressed like a peasant? What if this king came to serve? What if this king is stripped of his heavenly glory and takes on humility, poverty, and humanity? What if we search for this king in the extraordinary castle, yet he's hiding in a stable? You see, the Lord's Supper, we take it every week. Isn't it going to become rote? Isn't it going to become watered down? Aren't you just going to be doing it to be doing it, and so it's going to lose its meaning? No, it's not going to lose its meaning. This is how God works. God, through the regular Lord's Day service, through the prayers of His people, through the preaching of His Word, through the singing of hymns, and through the Lord's Supper, is shaping you. He's forming you into His people. And it's our obsession with spectacles that makes us forget that the Lord's Supper has meaning. It's shaping us. It's a means of grace. Now understand, it's not a means of grace as, as if by magic. It's not like the moment your body starts digesting those calories, the moment the wine hits your bloodstream like that, you're just a little bit more holy. That's not how it works. The Lord's Supper is not a dead sign for dead sinners. The point isn't to shove the elements into the mouth of a lifeless corpse, and then it's going to somehow awaken the corpse. But when the sacraments are performed in faith, living, breathing, active faith in Jesus Christ, that is a means of grace on your soul. Now, is everyone's faith equal? No, Romans 14 and 15 talks about this. There's weak faith and there's strong faith. Perhaps the faith of an older man who's walked with the Lord for many, many decades is going to be fuller and stronger than the faith of a small child. But they all come to the Lord's table with the faith they have and they partake. And so if you've been baptized in the triune name of God and are not under the disciplinary action of a local church, you need the Lord's table every week. And you should come with as much faith as you have. And when it comes to your salvation, whether your own or your little child's, you do not trust in this moment. You do not trust in the elements. You do not trust in the minister. When you partake of the Lord's Supper, you trust in Jesus Christ. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we see that Jacob and Laban eat together in Genesis 31 after they made a peace treaty. We see the elders of Israel eat and drink in your presence in Exodus 24, and you do not stretch out your hand against them. 
We see that the goal and conclusion of Israelite worship is a fellowship meal with you and that this renews the covenant. Likewise, as we draw near to you in the Lord's Supper, by faith we unite ourselves to the body and blood of Christ, the perfect sacrifice in which we receive your undeserved grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.